Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Our Heavenly Father, we pray very simply tonight that you would help us to see what David saw, to believe what David believed, and to find what David found. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. And uh, if you could be turning back uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 16, uh, that would be very uh, helpful. Page uh, starts on page 549 uh, in the Bible, Psalm 16. We were on uh, Omaha Beach in, on the Normandy coast just a, a week or so ago uh, while we were on holiday. And uh, and I can tell you, it's a very, very beautiful and peaceful place now. But 71 years ago on on D-Day, American soldiers were streaming onto that beach, utterly unprotected from the Nazi machine guns. Uh, It's said that 4,000 of them died in just a few hours of dreadful carnage. Put that number in perspective, uh, that's about the same number as the number of stars that you can see on a perfectly clear night. That number of bodies spread out over that beach. It's hard to imagine, really, what it must have been like to be there. Uh, Death in that place would have been very, very close, very, very personal, actual corpses uh, all around you very personal. These are your comrades. Some are perhaps your friends. You could be next. I'd have thought on that beach you'd be desperate for for cover, for any refuge or safety at all. But according to the Psalms that we've been looking at uh, over this summer, that illustrates in a very, I guess, very intense and exaggerated way perhaps, uh, what life is like more generally. Yeah, so life can, can, can often seem beautiful and often seem peaceful, but we stand back from it a little and look at, at it in the whole and over the longer term, 
And actually, what the Psalms tell us is that life is much more like Omaha Beach than we might think. You see, you might be thinking if you were on Omaha Beach back then on D-Day in the turmoil of war, you'd be thinking, you know, everyone around me basically is going to die. And let's face it, I'm going to die too. It's just a question of how and when. But come back from thinking about Omaha Beach all those years ago uh, to right now, right this evening, and look around you at the people around you tonight. And exactly the same is true. Everyone around me is going to die. And let's face it, I'm going to die too. It's just a question of how and when. Now imagine that you uh, might not feel like thinking about that very much, understandably. Uh, But what if I were to point you to someone who did find an absolutely secure refuge in the face of death. A secure refuge which transformed his, his shaky fear into precious rejoicing. What if I were to show you David, uh, the author of this psalm, David, uh, the king and ruler of Israel, the people of God, uh, some 3,000 years ago, writing this psalm, our passage this evening. And as we join in with David tonight, praying the words of this psalm together, I think we'll find that we'll be encouraged uh, to do what David did and then to find what David found. And in a world where security is profoundly elusive, uh, we'll be encouraged to cry out to God for it and to him alone for it. And so we'll be encouraged to find a secure future in him that not even death can end. And in some ways, it, perhaps it seems almost too simple to be true. But this psalm does suggest that if David himself were here tonight, and we were to ask him what he would have us do, his answer would indeed have those three elements to it. One, cry out to God. Two, cry out to God alone. And uh, those of us who already know something of the hope and safety we can find in God, I think we'll find that reminder especially challenging tonight. Uh, But then three, you will then find a secure future in him, not even death can end. So then how do we begin our pursuit of this wonderful safety? Well, it's very simple, says David. Begin this way, cry out to God, cry out to your God. Which is, of course, how David himself begins. Verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for in you, in you, I take refuge. And as we repeat those words that he wrote down for us, we join David in, in, that, in that search, in that search for safety and security, crying out to the Lord. Now, uh, clearly, as we read those words, um, safety is not straightforward. You know, it doesn't come easily. Like the rest of us, David um, must have found himself to be in a deeply unsafe place. Uh, If that wasn't the case, he wouldn't have to cry out to the Lord, his God, uh, for safety and refuge in this kind of way, in this kind of desperate way. Uh, But that's what David does. And that's where David turns. I suppose we might wonder a little bit about that, uh, especially if you were here last week. You you might wonder about that. Can, Can the Lord Almighty the most high of all, the sovereign creator? Can, 
Could he possibly be a safe place to turn to? But of course, David had to. Where else could he turn? If there is nowhere else to turn, uh, sometimes you simply have to go to the top, don't you? Uh, we discovered this here at, at Christchurch when we were getting nowhere with our internet uh, supplier, uh, who uh, shall remain nameless, although you can probably guess uh, who it is. Things only started to happen when we discovered the email address of the chief executive. Then suddenly, surprisingly, things did start to happen. It was very good. Now, of course, that's a, that's a silly comparison in some ways because, of course, internet supply is not, is not really a life and death issue, uh, whatever my children uh, may tell me. Uh, the question facing us is, that who do we turn to when it comes to matters of life and death? Well, of course, we are forced, really, in the end, to go right to the very, very top, the one who is sovereign over life and death. The only one who is sovereign over life and death. Approaching him might be a scary prospect, but when it comes to this issue, there really is no other place to turn. Now, most people do know this, I think. Um, It's likely that many, many people in some moment of despair in their lives, at some crisis, have indeed cried out to God. Maybe in words a little bit like these ones, even if it's just a brief cry. But is that what's going on here? Is that enough, really, uh, to make our futures secure? What kind of cry of dependency does David have in mind as he writes this psalm? Well, as we read on, we'll find out. And uh, this really is our second point uh, this evening. Uh, We can see that David's telling us, cry out to the Lord, but he's also telling us, secondly, to cry out to the Lord your God alone. Take a look uh, with me first at verse 2. This is what David says. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I think we can see immediately that David's got something in mind much stronger than a a sort of an occasional dependence. He's talking about an exclusive dependence. And if you're uh, someone who'd like to think of yourself as as already dependent upon the Lord, I I think you'll agree with me, this is actually quite a a testing verse. Uh, It's interesting that Peter drew, drew our attention to it earlier. You know, it's one thing in a moment of crisis to cry out to God. And then when the crisis is over to kind of forget about him and carry on as if nothing had been said. It's quite another to say these words, isn't it? You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It's quite another again to actually believe that, to actually think that. Think about it for a moment. Think about all the things that you consider to be good in your life. And I hope that's a long list. I hope that's a very long list. But the question is, is each of them strongly linked in your mind to your God? So that you can't think of them apart from him. So that you automatically want to give thanks to him for each one of them. 
You see, David's saying it's not enough to think of God as occasionally useful in a crisis. It's not even enough to think of him as good and giving good things alongside other good things that are really kind of nothing to do with him. No, David believes this. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. He's modeling for us an exclusive, devoted, loving dependence on the Lord, the Lord alone. And you'll see here that uh, one way that that shows itself for David is in his love for the Lord's people. And uh, we'll see that in the next couple of verses, verses three and four. So verse three, for example, as for the saints, David says, who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Now, the saints are those who are set apart by the Lord as his holy people. The Lord delights in them. And so as David delights in the Lord, he delights in them too, their family, if you like. That then contrasts with verse four. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods, says David. There are other people uh, not exclusively devoted to the Lord, uh, running after other things, but David will have nothing to do with them. He certainly won't have anything to do with any of their religious practices or take the names of any of their gods on his lips. Uh, It's very striking when you look into it, that that little phrase that's there in verse 4, those who run after other gods, uh, could actually be translated something like this. Uh, Those who wed other gods or those who acquire other things or gods, just like someone might acquire a new wife. Uh, That's very telling, I think. Uh, You see... uh, David, David is exclusively devoted to his Lord, just as you should be exclusively devoted in a a healthy marriage relationship. But these other people have a much looser arrangement uh, with no such exclusivity and no such faithfulness. I want you to imagine for a moment a a marriage proposal uh, that went uh, something like this. Just imagine being at the receiving end of this. Hello. I was just wondering, would you like to get married? Well, you know, sort of married. I don't mean old-fashioned married. You know, I've got, I've got other love interests, and I do want to keep those going as well. I'm sure you can understand that. It's okay, isn't it? And of course, I don't really want much to change. I don't want my life to change too much. I still want all my stuff. All my stuff okay. You can keep, keep your hands off that. I'm not talking about that. Uh, and I still want to keep seeing my mates, even though I know you don't like them. And uh, no family. No family, okay? I don't want anything to do with your family. Grief. Who would? <laughs> anyway, uh, how does that sound? Now, I can't imagine any sensible person saying yes to such a proposal. And if a real marriage were to disintegrate into that kind of situation or arrangement, we'd want to give it some drastic attention. But I suppose the the question we should be asking ourselves tonight is, uh, have we allowed our relationship with the Lord to collapse into something like that? 
such that he has become lost in the midst of all sorts of other things, all sorts of other interests, divorced from him, such that we live as if he's not really there, such that we dislike and avoid his people, his family, such that we run after all these other things in the hope that they might be able to give us what, what we want, even perhaps joy and safety and security. And notice it's our attitude to God's people that David's attention is really, really focused on here. It should be quite simple. Devotion to the Lord should mean devotion to his people. And the standard that David sets is really very strong. Verse 3, they are the glorious ones. God's people are the glorious ones in whom I delight. Now, all of that can be quite testing, I admit, I wonder, have you ever felt like um, avoiding people in, in the church family? Um, perhaps because they're angry or difficult people, or perhaps because they're awkward or, or got messy lives. I know I've felt that way. Have you ever thought, I'd rather not be here with these people, I'd rather be with some other people. I'd rather be with my mates. It's kind of easier. You know, they're much more like me. But I wonder if you can see that um, having that attitude, thinking that way, it would be uh, very much like me uh, saying to, to Catherine, my wife, yes, I know I'm married to you, but I don't want to have, to have anything to do with your family. Uh, not that I'm saying their family in any way difficult, of course. So I hope you can see, when this is put out sort of in front of us just so plainly, I hope you can see that not only that it is deeply ugly and wicked uh, to pursue an arm's length, casual relationship with the Lord, uh, it's also really quite stupid. Uh, We should be seeing that the stakes are very high here. We've seen it already. There's nowhere else that we can find safety and security from the shadow of death apart from the Lord. Uh, Or to put that more positively, we can put it more positively too. If we go down that line, if we go down the casual relationship line, we're in danger of missing out on something that David found to be profoundly beautiful and joyous. Because the rest of Psalm 16 tells us that is what David found. How does this psalm finish as we follow David in his pursuit of safety and refuge? Uh, He said to us, do this. He said, cry out to the Lord. And he's insisted, cry out to the Lord alone. Do that, says David, finally. And you will find a secure future. This is our final point tonight. Do those things. Do that and you will find a secure future. And not just secure, we'll see. Beautiful Uh, Indeed, a a future inheritance, a secure, delightful inheritance. Find it, says David, and join me in praising God that he has brought it to our attention and rejoice that not even death can end what we have in him. There's a wonderful, wonderful richness in what David uh, lays claim to here, beginning, of course, with the security of the future that he has in the Lord. 
So verse 5, for example, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Or, Or better would be, you are my portion and my cup. He goes on to say, you have made my lot secure. Uh, The lot was a a stone, a bit like a dice, I guess, that was uh, thrown to to make a decision, uh, thus shaping the future. So if David's lot is secure, then his future is secure. And that helps him then, verse 8, to be steady, stable right now. I shall not be shaken, he says. He might live in a shaky world, but he shall not be shaken. Why? Because verse 9, he can say to himself as he rejoices in the Lord, my body also will rest secure. In other words, in a decidedly shaky and unsafe world with a very uncertain future, this is what we can find in the Lord. But it's not all that uh, David found. He also found a beautiful inheritance. Verse 6 He says this, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. If you were to have an inheritance in in the land of Israel, it would be marked out, of course, with boundary lines. And uh, David is very pleased with these boundary lines that he's uh, talking about here. But he's thinking about more than just bits of earth, more than bits of land. He's thinking about also, of course, his relationship with the Lord, his life directed providentially towards an even better future, an even better place to live. And so it's not surprising to find David praising God that, his, that God has brought all of this to his intention, guiding him day and night towards this new future. Uh, let me read from verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me, even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And again, it's not surprising that we find David rejoicing that not even death can end the great thing he has in the Lord. From verse 9, he says this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, my whole being rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David clearly found something very, very special. He has joy set before him. You will fill me with joy in your presence, he says, with eternal pleasures that is at your right hand. And that future joy is so secure that some of that joy starts to kind of leak back into the present, if you like, seep back into the present, his present experience. Now, it doesn't smother everything in his present experience so that life is just joy and nothing else. There's, it's, it's not all joy now for, for David or for any of us. There's still plenty of tears to shed in the present, much grief and frustration and heartache. But through all that, through the tears, if you like, David can yet rejoice, anticipating what's set before him. And this psalm encourages us to anticipate it too. But here's the question as we finish uh, that may be bugging us. Was what David found and is expressing here just wishful thinking? 
Was it a self-delusion, which, while of course it may have made him feel a lot better, had in the end very little connection with reality? I think we can see there's no doubt that he clearly believed that what he had in the Lord, well, that not even death could take that away. He's saying effectively, if you love me this much, Lord, well, verse 10, I'm sure you won't abandon me to the place of death. You'll, you'll not throw me away into the grave. You know, if you love me this much, surely. Now, the problem is, of course, uh, as the Apostle Peter observed on the day of Pentecost, as he preached on the day of Pentecost, as is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, the problem is David did actually die. Brothers, Peter said, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried at his tomb is here to this day. So then does that mean we have to abandon this psalm? What are we going to make of these words in Psalm 16? Are they proved wrong? Well, interestingly, Peter didn't think so. Far from it. You see, what if these words actually remain true because David was thinking not just of himself but actually also of someone else? one of his descendants, a future kingly descendant, uh, one who is promised by God. What if that person were the one who would not be physically abandoned to the grave? Apostle Peter puts it like this, Acts chapter 2. Seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And then Peter adds... God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. David speaking not just of himself but of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you might still be saying, is this yet more wishful thinking? Surely uh, we can't believe in this day and age that someone, uh, namely this Jesus of Nazareth, was actually physically raised from the dead. It's, a, it's incredible, unthinkable. But the interesting thing is it was just as incredible and unthinkable back in the first century when Peter said those words. For different reasons perhaps, but just as unexpected you know, it's true that there was a widespread hope and expectation among some that at the end of all history there would be a, a general resurrection vindicating those who had died faithful to their God. But there's no expectation at the time of a single person leading the way, setting up that future. Now, once it was an established uh, fact of history, the apostles could see that it made sense. They could see how it fulfilled the scriptures, just like, uh, like this one. In Psalm 16. But to believe it, and to believe it as they did, they would have needed just as much strong evidence as we might today. And let me remind you uh, as we finish that evidence came in two parts. To begin with, of course, there was news of the empty tomb that Easter Sunday morning. As soon as the disciples heard it, they rushed to confirm it, and it was indeed true. 
I don't know of any historian who would dispute it, the empty tomb. Now, that's not enough on its own, of course, to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But then came reports of encounters with Jesus, real encounters with Jesus, physical encounters with Jesus, not just one of them, many of them, all of them, independent, all of them, credible, real encounters with the Jesus we know from the Gospels, all of them happening to people who weren't expecting them, who were as surprised as we would have been. Put these encounters together with the empty tune and we can begin to see why Peter was able to say with conviction in that sermon, God has raised this Jesus, spoken of by David, to life. And we are all witnesses of the facts. And we can begin to see why Peter and those first Christians were prepared to put their lives on the line, on the line for Jesus. Confident that not even death can separate them from the love of God. Able to say as they took the good news of his resurrection out into a hostile world, able to say just what David says here. You will not abandon me to the grave. You have made known to me in Jesus the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, I do think this has been a refreshingly joyful way to finish this little series on the Psalms. Uh, More generally, of course, as we've looked across these uh, Psalms from 11 through to to 16, uh, we have been reminded about some of the harshness and brutality of life, uh, that life is, uh, as I began with, uh, something like being on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Now, life, as I said at the beginning, doesn't always seem that way, Uh, So like the soldiers back then, before they got to the shore, we might be lulled into a false sense of security as we go about our lives. But when the ramps went down, uh, the truth was revealed. And it was no joke. Uh, Last week, uh, having just been to Normandy, we watched again uh, Steven Spielberg's reconstruction of that day in the film Saving Private Ryan. And uh, I'd forgotten just what a brutal and harrowing film that is. And it was a reminder, a very strong graphic reminder of the reality of death. You see, for all of us, something's going to happen at some point, sooner or later, to remind us that we live under the oppressive and unyielding shadow of death. Think of that air show disaster just yesterday, Death coming completely out of the blue for some people. So many people grieving now because of that. So many people around the world, face to face, really, with the brutal reality of death. And I know there'll be many here tonight who know that reality far more intimately than they would like. All of us are going to see it sooner or later. And uh, like uh, those soldiers on Omaha Beach, once we've seen it, we'll be desperate, desperate to find a place of safety. So be assured this evening, David did find that place of safety. David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, enables it and guarantees it. So don't treat that lightly. Don't treat that casually. 
Don't get drawn away by other things. And know tonight uh, that the Lord, by drawing us in to join in, we're praying this psalm together. Our Lord wants us to find that place of safety in the Lord Jesus too. Uh, So let's finish by praying for that together. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray according to the words of this psalm from verse 1. Keep us safe, O God, for in you we take refuge. From verse 2. You are our Lord. Apart from you, we have no good thing. And so verse 9, therefore our hearts are glad and our our tongues rejoice. Our bodies also will rest secure because of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for it in his precious name. Amen.